This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. And welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of the CE Drive Podcast. This is a continuation of Episode 5, where we were talking to Ray about the decision for one of his clients to incorporate and some of the follow-on discussions around that. Uh, Like the previous episode, this episode will be approved for uh, credits in all jurisdictions. It'll be good for a financial planning credit for Financial Planning Canada. It will be good for all life insurance and accident and sickness credits, and as well approved for IAS credits for those who need their advocacy credits. Uh, No IROC credits just yet. We'll figure that one out a little bit later on. I know there's some demand out there for IROC credits, so I would like to get that rolling. But uh, IROC has a fairly different approval set of criteria than other providers do. The color for today's episode is blue. The color is blue. When we left off with Ray, we had just broached the topic of installment payments, and we'll pick that up sort of midpoint here. Uh, Before we get back into the discussion with Ray, I'll just review installment payments a little bit. This is a requirement for uh, most people with self-employed income or commission income or fishing or farming income, although the rules there are a tiny little bit different, and also for anybody with a corporation. And the idea is when you're an employee, pretty easy to manage your taxes. Your employer has you file a TD-1 and the Associated Provincial form at the beginning of your employment, and your employer withholds an amount to match your estimated tax burden. Generally, if you're going to have a refund or an amount payable, it's a relatively small amount because that TD-1 helps us to estimate the tax bill properly. On the other hand, for a self-employed person, uh, it becomes much more difficult to figure that out. And what we don't want to have happen is a bunch of self-employed people who work through the whole year, don't pay any withholding taxes. And I should mention that that would include any remittances associated with Canada Pension Plan or optional employment insurance premiums. And then that person gets to their year end, has to file their taxes, and is uh, tens of thousands of dollars short. In order to prevent that from happening, once we have a self-employed person who has regularly had to pay taxes of $3,000 or more, that person is going to move on to an installment system. For an individual, there are four quarterly payments that have to be made, and those quarterly payments have to be made starting in 
March of the year in question, and then every three months after that. So that'd be March, June, September, and December. And the amount of installment payment has to match either the estimated tax bill based on the prior year, or if the current year is going to result in more tax payable, you actually want to increase that amount of installment payment. If the installment payment is not enough, if it doesn't match the higher of those two amounts, then there is going to be interest accruing. As of today, that interest rate is the prescribed rate plus uh, 4%. So you're paying at a, not a huge rate, but relatively higher rate, still cheaper than a lot of uh, borrowing for business purposes, but enough to make it a disincentive. You would rather, I think, in most cases, pay that versus have that uh, left outstanding. And actually, a curious question about that, something that used to be available, you used to be able to deliberately overpay your installment amounts and collect interest on that. That's no longer available, just in case you're thinking that you would overpay and collect interest. No, the interest only goes one way. Although there was a time when you could actually earn interest on your overpayment of installment payments. Uh, the rules for farmers are just a little bit more lenient. Farmers and fishers don't necessarily have to pay installment amounts if they're not going to have taxes payable in the current year. And I've used a $3,000 threshold to this point, but Quebec has only an $1,800 threshold. So a little bit different calculation in Quebec, not hugely different. As with all of this stuff, you would get good advice from your accountant to make sure that you're managing your installment payments properly. But as the financial planner, and this is exactly why Ray is asking this excellent question, as the financial planner, you should be thinking about how much liquidity you have to make sure that your client has in order to manage their installment obligations. And I would suggest this would be a place where you probably wouldn't want to use the tax-free savings account, for example, just because the consequences of withdrawals there are potentially bad if you put the money back in in the year. And I think with that installment payment account, that would often be the case. You might look at whether or not it's better to borrow money to make an installment payment or what other options might be best for you there. For corporations, the installment requirements are just a little bit different. If you are running a Canadian-controlled private corporation, then you go to a quarterly installment plan. That might mean that your corporation is on installment payments and you're personally also on installment payment requirements. That can be a little bit messy and may require tracking for two separate accounts. And then if your corporation is not a Canadian-controlled private corporation, the installment payments are based on a monthly requirement. I know those rules are a little bit complicated. The big thing the financial planner has to take away from that is that you do have to make sure that your client has cash on hand to be able to make those installment payments. Don't sock everything away, put it someplace uh, illiquid or pay off debt with it before you've properly accounted for that requirement to make installment payments. I agree though, that's that's an important first step. Now, is he not, he's not on uh, installment 
payments yet with CRA or he is on installment payments with CRA? I think, I think now he is. Yeah, the way installment like, payments uh, over yeah. the second year of owing more than $3,000, then CRA uh, forces you to move to installment. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Now, the nice thing is if you're using RRSP, and I understand there's that desire to kind of split TFSA and RRSP, and certainly in the popular press, there's a lot of push for people to maximize their TFSAs, right? Yeah, I just kind of want to get your perspective on, on that uh, RSP versus TFSA. If I were in Manitoba, once he has enough in his TFSA to be reasonably liquid, and mm -hmm. you did send me the balance, is it ten or $20,000 sitting in his TFSA? Check here, it should be on the razor there. Somewhere around $18,000 sitting in that TFSA. And uh, curiously, just while you check that, Ray, I, he uh, <laughs> his TFSA at a uh, robo-advisor, right, at uh, Wealthbar? Yes. Uh, yeah, right now it's, it's with Wealthbar. Yeah, I found that interesting. Um, had he chosen that before you knew him? Uh, no, it's actually, um, I don't know if you heard of uh, PPI Valet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's, uh, it's a relationship that I have through BMJ that I'm, that I'm with right now. Although since we chatted about this case, um, I've made a switch over to Wealthsimple. Thing kind of set up uh, just the fact that Wealthsimple's fees are a lot less and they have a lot more to offer in okay. terms of options. Yeah, I'm curious about that myself, like what facilitated that switch? So it's good to hear that opinion. Also part of the reason why I became a CFP is because when you have relationships with um, these robo-advisors, I think legislation might lead to the advisor having to have their CFP in order to justify the planning fee. That's certainly something I've yeah. tossed around a little bit. I think that's probably a ways down the road, but again, better safe than sorry. With something that. that may come down the line. So <laughs> just kind of try to be proactive about it. Yeah. Yeah. So just back to the TFSA versus RRSP point, we didn't finish that out. So you know that he's got a relatively large amount in TFSA. And my thought on this is, given that he's in that very high tax bracket in Manitoba, once you have sort of a comfortable amount in the TFSA, my advice would be to stop using TFSA until you're maxed out on RRSP room because it helps to mitigate the tax problem. So based on what I know so far about um, RRSPs, um, keeping in mind, I guess, his retirement goal, um, it's about 144k a year which was the $12,000 a year that he was after. Is it true that RSPs are not necessarily the best thing for everybody because of that reason, because of where their tax brackets are going to be from work to retirement? So for example, I guess it's more suitable for somebody who's earning in a high income in their working years and plans to be in a lower tax bracket in their retirement years. That's kind of where RSPs make sense. But if it's a situation where they're earning income at a lower tax bracket than in retirement, is that a case where it's not worth it? I generally would agree with that. Although in your client's <clears throat> case, he actually, it sounds to me, if he gets that 350 level, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. He'll be taxed at tax brackets north of 50%. Yeah. And if he retires at about half that, so if he retires at 150 or 160 of annual, 150, yeah, gotcha. yeah, his tax bracket will come down by, you know, roughly four percent then. So I guess that's where the the tax breaks and the income tax at that point will make sense for the RSP. 
that's where the spread makes sense, even if you're tax bracket neutral. I have seen math, and I find it a little bit suspect, but I have seen math that still supports that the value, essentially you're gonna get the time value of money on the tax deduction in that case. And yes. yet that will come out taxed at that high tax bracket, but you're still better to have those dollars and put them away. Now, that being said, just the reason that I'm not so concerned about TFSA here is because mm -hmm. income does get to those levels, you know, as his income creeps up. Once he's over about 100, right now, this year, the uh, yeah. maximum income at which the RRSP is effective is $147,000 a year. Once you break over that $147,000, you no longer have the 18% of your income available as your RSP limit. So if he really is making 350 or whatever, or higher mm. levels of income, then he's going to need savings vehicles other than the RSP to kind of save that 18% of his income. And that's where he's likely to max out the TFSA anyways. And then you'll find as you grow that income, then there are other tax planning opportunities available, although it gets tougher. And that's where, you know, later on in your CFP course, for example, although your client is far too young for it, you'll learn about the individual pension plan, which might be something to target when he's, you know, way down the road in his mid 40s. And it really becomes like an RSP on steroids. And then possibly at some point, I don't know, have you looked at like a permanent insurance solution at all? Have you thought about that? Uh, yeah. I was going to suggest that once the RSPs and TFSAs were maxed out. I think that's a pretty comfortable time to do it. You might look at at least thinking right now about some permanent insurance. There are some, you know, at a fairly young age and uh, when you're healthy and I assume your client is, I know he's young, this is where getting that low cost of insurance in place can really make a meaningful difference as to how you're able to use that insurance for a savings vehicle down the road. I'm not a fan of sort of selling insurance prematurely or where there's no need, but you said he's probably not too far from getting married. Um, we know that income mm -hmm. is high. We, you know, health sounds like it's good right now. And I might look at putting that permanent insurance in place right now with that low cost of insurance. And, you know, the nice thing now is uh, at that age, you can put in place a level cost of insurance permanent product and your cost of insurance is low enough that you can still use the the rest of the policy to save meaningfully, right? So are you talking like a UL policy or, or a, a whole life? I'm not fussy. I don't know if you have a preference one way or another, Ray. I'm not fussy. I find that you're kind of washed out, but go ahead with your thoughts on that. I'm more pro whole life uh, just because of the hands-off approach, but it is more costly. I don't know if you ever run into Equibuild, kind of a hybrid between UL and Whole Life. It is a product developed by advisors. It's more transparent than uh, your your typical participating Whole Life policy. It has the features of Whole Life, but it works like a UL policy. Yeah. And there's a lot of flexibility built into it. But it's still, at the end of the day, a UL policy, which um, some of the more seasoned advisors have told me that may not work so well with uh, with leveraging for high net worth clients. Yeah, and you got to think about that. Certainly, um, if the plan is long term to leverage against those values, you know that's where you're going a different route. Typically, that's where you're going to go mm -hmm. with a, a YRT cost of insurance and a much more aggressive strategy. And I, I'm always a little bit nervous 
about those more aggressive strategies. I know that the leveraging concepts can work. Well, I had a colleague that told me um, it's not even just with leveraging, um, more so like just putting it up as as collateral. Like um, he was telling me that banks will only put up 50% of a UL's uh, cash values as um, opposed to a, a higher amount with whole life. Yeah, on the surface, that's true. But if you get into some of the fancier leveraging strategies out there, you can do the immediate front-end leverage where you're actually borrowing 100% or very close to 100% of the account value, even in UL. But you start to get into some more aggressive strategies that way. Yeah. couple things to unpack here. We're going to talk about life insurance a little bit more in a moment. We'll come back to that because you'll hear Ray come up with a good question about the life insurance side of the house. I did want to mention another possibility, something I didn't mention in the discussion with Ray, and partly because I knew it was going to take us down a big rabbit hole. But if I had a client who was really making $350,000 a year, especially in a relatively high tax jurisdiction like Manitoba, I might be prone to look at the RCA, the Retirement Compensation Arrangement. Uh, The RCA, I know a lot of people find very complicated. It's actually not really that complicated. The idea here is that you put money into the RCA, and let's say I want to put $10,000 a year into the RCA, just to choose an amount. Well, at the same time, then, I would hand $10,000 over to CRA which is kind of like a 50% tax. That's $20,000 of cost, half of which goes to CRA. The difference, though, is that the portion that goes to CRA is refundable. The portion that gets invested into the RCA, that amount grows, and it can grow tax-deferred, although any non-tax-deferred growth that you encounter would be subject to another 50% withholding tax. It's important then if you're using the RCA to figure out your tax consequences and where to invest in advance. And that's where something like a corporate class fund or even maybe ETFs that are primarily using a tax deferral might be best. Uh, You'll occasionally run into insurance strategies where we link the insurance into the RCA, the cash surrender value of the insurance, and that can work out well. The RCA though that 50% withholding tax, that's all refundable. So that portion will come back to the RCA when you start to make withdrawals in retirement. You're not really then paying a 50% tax rate. You're just giving up half of the money that could be used to invest. And when you consider that it's refundable, it's not necessarily the worst thing because when you pay your ordinary taxes, none of that is refundable. And from that perspective, I would look at the RCA. I probably honestly wouldn't look at it for a client this young anyways. I might wait till the client has maybe seven or eight or 10 years of operating in their business. And I might look at it then. The nice thing with the RCA is you're not subject to any liquidity restrictions. You really can set this up with a little bit more flexibility than other kinds of retirement accounts. One of the big downsides to it, you do need to engage an actuarial firm in order to use it. It's not something you're going to find on your normal insurance or investment product shelf. You need to bring in that third-party specialist. And of course, that will come with additional fees 
and all that goes along with bringing in that outside specialist. Let's uh, pop back to Ray and see where he takes us with this permanent insurance discussion. So Jason, in regards to the, the permanent insurance for, for this young guy, um, the reason why I was not really proposing it yet is because of the incorporation, because based on what I've heard, it's, it's a little, it can cause problems if you're moving over a personal permanent policy into a corporate, uh, under corporation. That was kind of why I was kind of holding back because if he does incorporate, because I have a, a pretty big term policy on him right now, um, and I was going to convert it over to a permanent policy once he incorporates because I guess there's no problems there because there's no cash values involved. But w- would it be a bad thing to put a permanent policy on him right now while he's not incorporated? This is a really good question, and there's a lot of depth to this. My first caution is, and you said it well, that moving insurance, and I, I would suggest that it applies to term potentially as well, is that moving insurance in okay. corporations is generally not that great. If you, You're probably honestly better off to just re-underwrite if you decide to have that term policy in the corporation, just because there may be tax consequences to moving that policy into the corp, and definitely there are tax consequences if you ever have to pull the policy out of the corp. And I know that we always kind of figure the corporation is going to stick around forever and ever, but that doesn't necessarily happen. You know, you rightly mentioned at the beginning of the call that the incorporation rules in Manitoba only came into existence last year for this profession. It's possible, Mm -hmm. you know, the rules switch back or that your guy switches province of residency or even country of residency. And that can create, and especially at that very young age, right? That can create some problems with what happens with the corporation. So if you've got, you know, more complex assets, like a permanent insurance policy sitting inside the corporation, it does get difficult to manage those things at that point. Because isn't it true that from a, a premium perspective, it's a lot cheaper through the corp? Yeah, around 45% cheaper, yeah. especially in Manitoba, where your corporate dollars are so much cheaper than your personal mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're right. That temptation is there for sure to have that corporation. I still am a fan. In his case, you've got this term insurance owned personally. Yeah. And I still am generally a fan of having at least a good chunk of your insurance owned personally. Now, you're right. Like you said earlier, you were hesitant about the permanent policy because you're waiting to see what happens with the incorporation decision. And Mm -hmm. there, I might, as you, I think, are suggesting, wait until that decision is made. And then if he decides to incorporate, it probably makes sense to put the permanent policy in the corporation. Mm -hmm. Although you do run the risk that if something significant changes, it's very expensive to get that policy out of the corporation. Yeah. I'm just going to interject for a moment here. Uh, This will be a shorter interjection than normal. Uh, I just noticed that As we're going through that, my discussion about cost savings by holding insurance in the corporation got cut out a little bit. And it's normally between about 35 to 45 percent cheaper, considering the value of after-tax dollars, to hold your insurance in your corporation versus holding it personally. I still don't think that that's a reason by itself to hold the insurance in the corporation. I think that can often be a mistake as you already heard me talk about, but in both cases, you're going to be using your after-tax dollars 
And it's really that your corporate after-tax dollar is a lot more dollar than your personal after-tax dollar. And that would be especially true in uh, Ray's province of Manitoba. Ray talked about using insurance inside the corporation to potentially leverage against later on. And I run into lots of questions about this. It's something that I will cover in a more detailed episode in the future, but I have a few comments about it here. First off, yes, you can put permanent insurance inside your corporation. Absolutely a valid strategy. I generally recommend that if you're going to have insurance in the corporation, that it's inside a holding company rather than inside an operating company. There are a few reasons for that. The one that I consider the priority here is we are in the business of risk management. And part of that risk management would be if you had an incident happen where your business owner dies in the same incident that gets them sued. And I always think about the contractor who maybe has a a few too many drinks after work with the boys one night, takes the work truck, puts it on the road and causes some damage and is killed in the same incident, then that death benefit will be paid into the corporation and would be accessible to the raft of creditors that that person would now have. We don't want that to happen. We want that death benefit available for that person's loved ones to pay off their mortgage and income replacement and whatever else. So if we're going to hold it, we want to hold that in the holding company. Now, there's no guarantees there. You sure can't tell somebody that holding an asset in the holding company guarantees that creditors can't get at it. You've heard me use this analogy before, but my lawyer likes to say that when you put these protections in place, it's like a chase scene in a movie. Your holding company is one of the things that you would use to prevent the person chasing you from catching you, but there are no guarantees that you can stop that person from catching you. Regardless, put that policy in the hold co. And then the other reason that I like it in the hold co is if you ever sell the operating company, you can keep the holding company owning the insurance. Once you make that decision to have permanent insurance in the corporation, it's kind of a life sentence. You really have to resign yourself to that insurance being in that corporation forever and ever. It is prohibitively expensive from a tax perspective to pull that insurance out of the corporation. It's both a deemed disposition for the transferring corporation and it's a taxable shareholder benefit to receive that policy for the shareholder receiving it. Although it can be taxed as a dividend, a lot of people still look on that and see double taxation where both the corporation and the shareholder are paying tax when you pull that policy out I generally find it's not worthwhile to take that policy out of the corporation. The other problem with that, of course, is that if you end up with somebody who completely changes gears as far as their career, uh, let's say that Ray's client after 10 years, and I actually know somebody who did almost exactly this thing, Ray's client after 10 years of practicing in his uh, medical profession decides that he wants to go be a helicopter pilot. Well, that corporation is now stuck sort of owning that insurance and potentially no revenue coming into that corporation to continue paying premiums on that. That's not the worst thing, but we still want to make sure that we're planning for what could happen down the road. And then 
Uh, of course, a change of residency, if Ray's client decides to go practice in another country, that policy would now probably fall under the tax purview of that other country's tax regime. And as an example, if Ray's client went to practice in the United States, that means the policy has to continue to meet the basically the American version of the exempt test every year, which entails hiring an actuary to report to the IRS what the tax status that policy is. That gets to be a fairly expensive proposition. Of course, there are some serious advantages to holding the insurance in the corporation. As we mentioned in the interview, it's quite a bit cheaper to pay your premiums that way. And you also have access to the capital dividend account credit, which would allow you to take out the death benefit in excess of the ACB tax-free on the death of that life insured. And our other benefit is that the income that happens within the policy does not count against your passive income test for the purpose of reducing your small business deduction when your passive income exceeds $50,000. Of course, on the other side, that is still considered a passive asset. Ray also mentions in here the prospect of borrowing against that insurance policy. This is a fairly complicated thing. This is what I really want to cover in a future podcast. There is an easy way to do this. You can just do the same type of use the cash value as collateral, borrow that money, go on from there. And then the money, the problem there is the money is in the corporation and then you still have to pay it out to yourself as a dividend. It's not terribly efficient. There are ways to use more aggressive leveraging strategies where you either borrow up to the full cash value of the policy or near that full cash value right up front. And you can create some fairly interesting cost outcomes that way. If you're going to do that kind of thing, what you really want to do is get your high net worth insurance specialist from your MGA or from your career sales force in the loop. They all know how these strategies work and they'll tell you what the tax risk is and how to properly structure the policy. Often to do those, you have to have the policy set up properly. There are even ways, although again, I'll highlight tax risk here, there are ways to borrow that money personally while keeping that asset within the corporation. So it can work. It's just something that has a fair bit of risk and the strategy has to be done properly right out the gate And sometimes that can involve a reorganization of your share structure. Sometimes that can involve setting up the lending all before we underwrite the insurance. Uh, But don't don't, um, a lot of um, business owners, um, even after retirement, keep the corporation running? You can. Absolutely, you can. And people do. That's the question. It's, It's a different decision. Like if I'm Mm -hmm. and I'm deciding whether I'm going to keep my corporation through retirement, right? Mm -hmm. Versus if I'm because uh, aren't you building a lot of that estate planning into the corp? Quite often. You're right. Once you sort of take that first step, you, uh, you know, your corporation is almost like a life sentence now, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that is something to really carefully consider. And 
you know, you'll, you'll know your client and your client will have a feel for this, but that's sort of the, the question is, are you comfortable with that shackle associated with the corporation? It can be really mm -hmm. bad, but that's like essentially then you're making the decision to incorporate and then you're making the decision that the corporation is effectively going to be permanent, right? Yeah. Which um, I think in his case might be the case because he's a he's going to be practicing for a long time. He loves what he does. Um, I, I can see that he's going to be holding on to this for quite a while, but I guess that's just a deeper conversation that I need to have with him and kind of explain to him. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. The pros and cons, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I would be thinking not just about whether he wants to be practicing for a while, but again, back to my comment, uh, not knocking Winnipeg here, Ray, but not everybody's excited about spending their entire life in Winnipeg, right? Oh, you're, you're talking to that person. <laughs> so, I mean, as, I mean, as I look out the window, I still know the snow. <laughs> we still have snow in our backyard. So yeah, just in the shade, just in the shade. You'll be able to get your continuing education credits by going to bccquiz.online. That's BCC as in Business Career College, bccquiz.online. And there's a little quiz you'll do there, just a few questions. And if you're already a subscriber, then it will issue you a certificate. If you're not already a subscriber, then you'll be able to sign up there and you'll be able to get your continuing education credits that way. Ray does a good job of talking about this. He says, I'm going to go back and talk to my client now about that desire to incorporate. I think not just with respect to incorporation or withholding insurance in the corporation, but especially with younger clients, although not exclusive to younger clients, we do want to think about flexibility. And one of the things that I see go wrong sometimes, and I see this often from a financial planner who's picking up a new client, is that a previous financial planner put in place a whole bunch of stuff that was basically designed around a fixed assumption that nothing was going to change in this person's life or nothing was going to change in tax rules or in how insurance is underwritten. I always want to be cautious about that. Sometimes you can come up with a really great plan and that really great plan works well if nothing else changes. And this can be true for very common events. We can point to separation or maybe insurance tax changes. I always think about people who got caught out on the old 10-8 insurance concept, people who had sold their clients that 10-8 with the idea that it was going to save them a bunch of taxes. And yes, it often did in the short term and then had to be unwound in the longer term. I don't think clients always respond well to that. Whether it's fair or not, I think sometimes clients expect the advisor to have a bit of a crystal ball with respect to future changes. You're not going to have the working crystal ball, but absent the crystal ball, you have to recognize that the future is uncertain. And a big part of the reason we're writing a financial plan is to accommodate that future uncertainty. Yeah. Now you had another question here that I thought was really good and it takes us away from the insurance. And I'd like to maybe ask you this question and then, uh, and maybe that's the last topic we'll cover today, but uh, you mm -hmm. had asked about cash flow management within the business. 
Uh, yeah. And I'm curious to know, is this really about the tax planning side of things or is this about like month to month managing expenses versus income? Yeah, like I kind of went through the, the cash flow portion of the course already. Um, it, it mainly touched on, on like just regular everyday people and their expenses. Like from, from, your, from your experience, um, like as a, as a CFP, um, are there any differences between business cash flow planning and personal cash flow planning? Yeah, absolutely. There are now. I actually so just to be clear here, I'm not a CFP professional. I don't carry the designation. Just so we're okay. Yeah, but, but you teach yeah. the course, so yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, you obviously know yourself. And I've been running a business myself for 12 years now. There are, I would suggest, some significant differences between personal cash flow planning and business cash flow planning. For personal cash flow planning, you can generally really dollars in, dollars out. Like you just itemize everything on the in column and itemize everything on the out column. Most types of expenses that people incur, you have a way to make those monthly. So, you know, insurance premiums, even though it's cheaper to pay them annually, usually. Uh, most people can, you know, most people make them monthly and sort of move out your cash flow that way. Or with your mortgage, even though it's cheaper to pay your mortgage weekly or accelerated weekly or whatever. Most people I think are better off to deal with mortgage payments, you know, twice a month or every two weeks or whatever the case, just because it matches the cash flow better. Other than, you know, a little bit of lumpiness, like, you know, the Christmas season tends to be a little more expensive and whatever happens. But in a business, there is much more lumpiness to it. And even things like Canada Pension Plan. So I'll use Canada Pension Plan just because we had an experience with that this year. Our Canada Pension Plan source deductions in January of this year were significantly higher than our Canada Pension Plan source deductions in January of last year, just because there's the increase. So CPP rates went up from 4.95% to 5.1% this year. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our staff have you know, proper cost of living wage increases and all that goes along with that. So that's not even like a nice, clean, predictable expense. That's, that's an item that, you know, CPP would assume it would be fairly linear. But actually what happens with CPP is once you have your staff who've made more than the year's maximum pensionable earnings, more than about $56,000, $57,400 this year, then there's mm -hmm. stops. And so you get this, uh, you know, high bill all the way through till, you know, usually sometime around October, November, and then the bill drops right off. And then come January, you pick right up again. So it's much mm -hmm. more challenging to manage your month to month cash flow. And then the big thing, one big expense that you often have to deal with it is just the cost of doing business is around professional services. Yeah. You know, your lawyer and accountant, you need those people, you need them in your corner from time to time there's a cost there that maybe you didn't want to deal with, right? Yeah. On the cash flow side, and you rightly talked about it before. You said you've introduced this guy to your accountant. You know, I think it'd be worth a discussion with your accountant about what he does around cash flow management for businesses. Mm -hmm. And if he doesn't do something, you know, there are accountants out there who do it. And I know it's hard to you don't want to cut your guy out or whatever, but you also need somebody who provides the service that your client needs, right? Yes. 
and I've been surprised at this, Ray. This is something that, that I have personally have seen where some accountants are very like tax focused, right? My, I like my accountant. My accountant is really good, but mm-hmm. my accountant really has been very tax focused. We talk a little bit of management issues, but not too much. And then I see other accountants that, uh, you know, they're very much into the, the whole process control and uh, waste reduction area. Mm-hmm. And like a different specialization. Yeah. So I don't know if that's helpful, Ray. And it is, unfortunately, I think, you know, for financial advisors, I haven't seen like the good cash flow management course or discussion or whatever for businesses. Certainly lots out there personally. Got it. Yeah. It's not something necessarily that we're to do or, or are trained on, but maybe something to collaborate with the accountant. Yeah, certainly. I mean, if you wanted to get good at it, there are courses you could take out there, but they would really be courses full of accountants and you'd be the odd man out. Yeah. <laughs> the, the boring stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that can be fine. There's nothing wrong with stepping outside of it. Yeah. And then the issue is you have to figure out a way to integrate that into your business, right? Because that's, you know, are you, are you building for those services or are you, how do you integrate something sort of unconventional into a traditional financial advisory business model? Yeah. Ray brings up another good point here as to how far you want to go as the financial planner. And this area of business cash flow management, I think, is an excellent one. In core curriculum, we learn to do cash flow statements for individuals and families. We learn how to adjust that for retirement and what happens when you have a child or a child moves off to school or all those different adjustments we see in a normal family situation. We talk a little bit about self-employment income and how to manage that, and especially its sort of irregular nature. You've heard a couple of previous guests on this podcast talk about Stephanie Holmes-Winton and her cash flow specialist uh, courses. But when we get into business financial planning, this is really a different ballpark. And I would suggest that some accountants are going to be really good at this. It will help a, a business owner to dig in and understand their month-to-month cash flow management or even day-to-day cash flow management. There are some basic tools you can use here, even as the financial planner. You can take some of the principles you know from individual or family financial planning and carry them over. Things like not carrying more debt than you can manage or alternately making use of debt when it's appropriate or planning for unforeseen events, having a little bit of a an emergency fund or cash reserve on hand, making sure that there's an understanding of what comes in each month and what goes out each month. Although again, that tends to be a lot lumpier for businesses. Something that the business owner can benefit from is to understand what their high periods and low periods are. When does income increase? When does it drop off? Do we have cash reserves to help manage that? And then, as I mentioned, those professional services are a particular issue. Uh, That's something that maybe I'm particularly sensitive to today because we just wrapped up, although in our favor, but still after a long battle, we just wrapped up a uh, fairly expensive lawsuit and bills show up there around that kind of stuff. You're not always expecting the exact dollar amounts 
can be difficult to manage those things. Again, probably better to find a specialist to refer this to, but there are some basic financial planning principles that you can point your client to that would apply equally well in business financial planning versus personal financial planning. So I think, uh, Ray, let's, is, is there one last question you had about this situation? One last thing you wanted to address? Yes. Uh, can I go back to the corporate owned insurance? Topic? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we talked about life. What are your thoughts on shared ownership? The critical illness insurance? Um, yes. So I have mixed feelings on that. I think it probably is okay as long as you don't do anything too aggressive. I prefer it where, and just so everybody out there in listener land is clear, what Ray is talking about here is you buy a critical illness insurance policy within the corporation, the corporation pays premiums, the corporation has an insurance need, and if the, in this case, the the medical professional ever gets sick, the corporation will receive the critical illness benefit. And then separately from that, on the same policy, the shareholder pays a premium for the return of premium rider, which is going to be somewhere around uh, maybe 30% of your uh, CI premium. And you'll have a 15 year return of premium where if the shareholder doesn't get sick in that 15 years, then you'll have the cost of insurance paid by the corporation plus the return of premium rider paid to the shareholder probably tax-free, although that's the issue of some debate here. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it can be an efficient way to get money out of your business. And I've seen the rate of return calculations on this, Ray. Normally, it's about a 5.5% rate of return, sort of, if you mm -hmm. compare that to stripping money out of the corporation, paying tax on it, saving those dollars, and how much you end up with at the end. So it's fairly efficient in terms of an allocation of insurance premiums. Mm -hmm. My concern here, the reason I sit on the fence about this is because right now, like this year, last year, maybe two years ago is the first time that we're seeing these things actually pay out. So, mm -hmm. um, so as and they sees a lot more get paid out, right? This is where mm -hmm. if we're going to have a challenge, I think we're going to have that challenge the next year or two. And for that reason, I might, just especially with your client in this case, I might wait a couple of mm -hmm. years to put it in place and just see mm -hmm. if CRA has an issue with these. Now, I don't want to panic anybody out there. I think that they probably will be okay. I just have seen some fairly aggressive versions of this. And sometimes it's a case of, uh, you know, the, the aggressive one gets shut down, but it sort of drags everybody else down with it. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I think they're probably okay. I'm not a qualified to comment on uh, how CRA might interpret yeah. Section 15.1 of the Income Tax Act, but that's what I would suggest is that I might just slow down a little bit with that and see what happens over the next two or three years. And return of premium, your thoughts? Yeah, so that's the, the, the regular, just, let's just say like he chose to personally, just take personally. a personal critical illness policy. Do we do we elect return of premium or take the difference and invest it elsewhere? Yeah, I like it on kids. Um, I'm not so sure. I haven't. Uh, I'm too old for that. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I don't know, Ray. It's a good question, um, and I haven't yeah. 
numbers on it. And I'm always a little bit concerned anyways. And I know I just gave you a sort of rate of return for that re return. <laughs> but I'm always yeah. a little bit concerned about sort of treating insurance like that as an investment strategy. I don't know. I kind of like buy the insurance, take what you would have spent on the ROP and go and invest that. Um, it's a more of a yeah. sure that way, right? Especially like you yeah. kind of pointed out earlier, you know, if you've got some TFSA room to play with, you're probably going to do better investing long-term in your TFSA than you are on the return of premium rider. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts? My thoughts, exactly. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for being very open about learning here and being curious. I think there's something to be said for that. Really appreciate it, right? No, thanks for your time and your input. Okay, and good luck as you work your way through the rest of the course. I hope you learn a lot, and I hope you find things you can bring value to with your clients. Thanks. The number for today's episode is eight. The number is eight. All right, Ray wrapped us up there with the questions about critical illness insurance. This is a, another topic that I find quite interesting. It's funny how Ray kind of hit many of the big topics that show up in this discussion with your uh, business owner clients. And I like that he has an idea what all those questions are. It seems like he has sort of these four or five questions laid out, ready to go. He's thought about them. He's done maybe some calculations already in some cases and has a good idea what he wants to ask. I like the idea here that you work through some of the, the numbers, maybe schedule a meeting with the client and have this discussion, and then have a follow-on meeting with the accountant and the client together. Maybe you meet with the accountant first and then meet with the accountant and client all together to talk this through. I don't think that Ray brought anything up here that would need the lawyer involved. Although we did hear that this client is working with a senior, with somebody else where it sounds like Ray's client is part of a, a succession plan. And that's where he might want to talk to a lawyer at some point to talk about what a succession strategy might look like, what they might do in terms of a, a share buyout or asset purchases or however that's going to look. And again, that's a fairly big question, maybe getting a little bit ahead of ourselves by having that discussion right now. Just going back to this critical illness insurance question and how I might run that comparison. What I might look at here is, and it's difficult, it's not an easy thing to do, but what I might look at is if you bought it personally and you take that number of dollars and set that aside and have that available as a return of premium. Let's say for the sake of argument, the total cost of the policy and the return of premium is $10,000 a year. What I might look at then, I plug that into an Excel spreadsheet and I say, okay, that $10,000 a year, if it's a 15-year return of premium, that'll kick out $150,000 at maturity and then compare that to the cost just of the return of premium rider. So if the return of premium is $2,000 of that $10,000, what happens if I take that $2,000 and invest that every year for uh, 15 years? What does that turn into by way of an investment outcome? And you want to compare that really to what happens with the 
$8,000 that you're paying as your cost for your critical illness insurance. It's not the easiest calculation to run, but if you take two or three different attempts at it, for those that have done any sort of financial calculator work with me, you draw your line, you math it out, you crack open your Excel spreadsheet, run the numbers, take that to the accountant. And I would suggest you take it to the accountant, not like it's a done deal. You take it and say, look, I've run these numbers based on this policy. You might have a, an illustration available based on this policy. Do these numbers make sense to you, accountant? And instead of telling the accountant how it works, then you're really giving the accountant the opportunity to do what they should do, which is to provide some expertise in this area. What the risk is there is, of course, the accountant disagrees with you. And if they do, fine, you can run the numbers together. You can show the accountant how you generated your numbers and ask the accountant what numbers ought to have been used. I would suggest that sometimes out of that conversation, you're going to gain a convert. You might get somebody who recognizes the value of that type of structure or even just recognizes that you're willing to hear that person out, that you're willing to have that conversation and trying to bring best value to your client that way. Thanks so much for joining us again today. Join us again in a couple of weeks when we will have Ian on the podcast. Ian has a really good and in-depth discussion here about debt. We're going to talk about debt and managing consumer debt a fair bit. I really enjoyed this discussion and I think everybody will get some good value out of it. I would ask that you pop over to do your quizzes. Again, those quizzes can be done at bccquiz.online. Just a little five-question quiz, and you'll be able to get your continuing education credits. I did want to acknowledge a couple of listeners, uh, one who was good enough to pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review there, and I appreciate these reviews. They help us to get discovered, and I have heard from a couple of people that they discovered us recently via either Apple's podcast app or some other podcast app. Uh, this review came from uh, Beanline, who gave us a five-star podcast. Thanks, Beanline. And says he appreciates the uh, variety of opinions and real-world examples. And I think we heard some of that today with Ray, some really great real-world examples there. Uh, the other person that I wanted to comment on here was Kent, and uh, Kent specifically fired me an email, and I appreciate this, to say he was uh, not too keen on some of the opinions expressed by one of our guests, and I, I appreciate that. I thought that this might be something we could talk about in some sort of online community around the podcasts, and maybe I'll develop that out at some point down the road, but it is the nature of these interviews not everybody is going to agree with everything that gets said. And sometimes, because I think of the quasi-anonymous nature of the discussions, combined with just getting comfortable having these conversations, people will say things that others don't necessarily agree with. I think that's good. I think there's some benefit to that, although I know that it does require me to ask a favor of you, the listener, to say, Know, follow along with me here. We're going to have a discussion with somebody and there will be a variety of outcomes from that discussion. Again, join us in a couple of weeks when we'll talk to Ian about debt. Thanks so much. 
bunch of people have a hand in producing this podcast. Joseph Tong takes care of our music and editing. Anthony Summers is responsible for tech support. Maria Nguyen takes care of all the CE applications to the various accrediting bodies. Marjorie Lewis takes care of certificates when the machine doesn't do it. Desiree Gretton Hicks and Penny Watt take care of our marketing, making sure that there are folks out there to listen to the podcast. Thanks to all those who help out. Thank you.